Welcome to Meditations with Zohar. I'm thrilled to be here with David Epstein, who is a journalist and the author of an amazing book called Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. Welcome, David. Thanks so much for having me. I'm a generalist. I love generalism. Uh, I love people who are generalists. And I feel pretty authentic uh, in the sense that even if I see specialists who have succeeded, it doesn't really entice me. Um, the story of Tiger Woods, um, who was golfing since he was six or seven months, um, I don't I don't think, oh, I wish I had that one thing that I was really excellent at. I, I kind of pity him. Um, but that doesn't seem to be your experience. So maybe let's just start with a question of authenticity. Um, given that there's such a variety of temperaments and ways that people are raised, how do you know who you are um, when it comes to the pursuit of many things or one thing? And at what point in a person's development should we sort of stop and say, okay, now you've now you should figure it out. Now you should know whether you're a generalist or not. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I think, first of all, I think that there are many, and I, I take this phrasing from Herminia Ibarra, the London Business School professor who I write about in range, who studies sort of how do people find good uh, so-called match quality in their work, that that degree of fit between interests and abilities in the work that one does. And what she says notes that we have many possible selves, right? So I think there are a lot of different paths that that we could run. And the idea that the one that we're in is inevitable um, is not sort of an idea I subscribe to. So I think the best way to go about this uh, is with with certain habits of mind, as opposed to thinking there's this sort of one perfect path out there that I need to find. And I think the habit of mind that I think about um, is akin to that research I write about in range called the Dark Horse Project. So again, this this is research that's looking at how do, again, how do people find really high match quality and degree of fit between interests and abilities in the work that one does um, or the activities that one does in general. And turns out to be very important for one's sense of fulfillment and one's performance. And the the reason it's called it was called the Dark Horse Project was because it wasn't called that at first, but the researchers brought people in to sort of just do like the kind of orientation interview for them. People would say, well, I, I hope you're not going to tell anyone to do what I did because I started down this one track and realized that wasn't really a fit for me. So then I went this other way and I realized there was a, an aspect of that I really enjoyed, but not the whole thing. So I went and pivoted. So I kind of came out of nowhere. And that wasn't the story everyone told, but it was the large majority of them saying like, well, I was just a one-off exception in sort of zigzagging and finding my thing. And so they ended up realizing that that was the norm. And I think the habit of mind that those people had was instead of looking around and saying, you know, here's who's younger than me and, and has more than me or is doing better than me, they would say, here's who I am right now. Here are my, my skills and interests. Here are the opportunities in front of me. And I'm going to try this one right now. And maybe a year from now, I'll change because I will have learned something about myself or my opportunities will have changed. And what they're doing intuitively is what psychologists call self-regulatory learning. They're in this constant cycle of, of acting and then thinking, like trying something and then reflecting on how it fit them um, and, and pivoting based on that knowledge. And I think that's sort of a lifelong journey. And, and in doing that, they pile up this usually sort of broad repertoire of experiences. They pick up different interests along the way. And so it's not like they even set out to say, I'm going to be a generalist. It's that they sort of followed their their interests at each step and kind of compiled this broad group of interests and experiences. And so I think the way to go about it, I think, because we can't sort of prescribe for anyone, because the sort of think about who you are and then act doesn't really seem supported by the psychological research that you actually have to do stuff and then reflect on it to learn about yourself. So I think the way to go about it is with that, that sort of self-reflective um, habit of mind as you go along the journey and, and each step then gives you more learning about who it is that, that you can become. I think the downside is at the time we're usually telling people like, you've got to figure it out is I maybe, you know, like when they graduate from college or something and there's a there's very like well established finding that the it's called the end of history illusion, which is this this psychological finding that people change more than they think they will. 
So everyone agrees that they changed a lot in the past, you know, their values, what they think they're good at, how they want to spend their time, what they want in friends, et cetera, and then says, well, now I'm pretty much done. And we underestimate future change at every single time point. So it does slow down, but it never stops. And the period from about 18 to your late 20s is the fastest time of personality change. And that's typically when I think we're telling people that they have to figure it out. I, I do think they should figure it, be figuring out things to try and experiments to run, but that they shouldn't have the mindset that I'm finding the thing I'm going to do for the rest of my life now. I just don't think that's realistic. In the UK, and I think Europe, people specialize earlier than in the US. What have you found from sort of comparing the US uh, approach to education in high school and college versus other places where you pick a major spe specialty, you know, sometimes as early as 14 or 15? Yeah, I mean, I think there's some cost to that. You know, I, well, I think there's some trade-offs to that, I should say. Um, to me, kind of the theme that's on every page of, of range that but would have been like a much less marketable subtitle, I think, um, is that sometimes the things you can do to sort of optimize in the short term can actually undermine long-term development uh, in many cases. And if we think about, for example, research that was led by Stanford, but in part of an international uh, coalition that looked at a dozen countries and they matched people for, and these were random samples of people. Um, so, so the majority actually didn't have tertiary education, but, but plenty did, um, matched people for their years of education, their parents' years of education and their national test scores when those were available. And some of, some of the people got like, you know, narrowly focused education earlier and others got broader general education, kind of what, what we're more used to in the U S and the pattern was that those who got the more focused education did get hired more quickly right out of their education. They did have higher income right away, but their growth rates were lower. And when there were sort of changes in their industry, they were less resilient. And so over the long term, they ended up losing out. Again, this is just measuring income. Of course, that's certainly not everything, but it's easily measurable. Uh, and so there was this long-term, short-term trade-off, and the faster changing the economy of a country in the study was, the greater the long-term advantage that accrued to the people who had this kind of broader base. And so I don't think that means like we shouldn't have any specialized or narrowly focused education early. I think we should diversify the pipeline so people have sort of all sorts of entry points into various paths at various times in their life too. But I think the research suggests that in terms of long-term sort of resilience and ability to pivot in a pretty fast-changing work world, people with that broader base not only tend to tend to have better match quality, like find a better fit of what they do because they've had this an opportunity to experience different things, but end up sort of more resilient. So I think we need to be cognizant of those trade-offs. Is there such a thing as too much generalism in the way that there could be too too much narrowness? too much breath. And how would you know then when you've sort of over-optimized for optionality as opposed to sort of picking something to focus on and commit to? I definitely think that's a real challenge and a real possibility. Like you can end up just sort of bouncing around for forever and kind of having no coherence to your, to your journey, just like you can end up, you know, optimizing prematurely and specializing too early. Um, and I think the challenge there is one, it's, it's, well, we all specialize to kind of some degree or another at some point. It's a kind of a question of degree. Like when I got off before I was a journalist, I was training to be a scientist. And when I went from science into writing, my scientist colleagues saw me as, you know, a generalist and my, the writing colleagues saw me as a specialist because I was doing science writing, uh, specifically. Um, but I think the, I think there is a challenge there. And again, because the, the things you say just prompt the research in my head, because that's how I think. Like, to use an example, research I wrote about at 3M, which is every year deemed one of the most innovative companies in the world, which was a surprise to me, because I all I saw this when I would look at companies ranking their peers in terms of innovativeness, and it would be all companies you'd heard, you know, it'd be uh, Google, Apple, whatever, and then 3M, and I'm like, the Post-it uh, company? But it turns out they do a ton of other stuff, and, and every... Every year, they're supposed to make a quarter of their uh, profit from products that didn't exist five years prior. So they're like constantly inventing. And they did internal studies of their 7,000 inventors where they would categorize them based on the number of different kinds of technology they worked with. And some of them were specialists, so 
sort of obviously dove deeply into one kind of technology. And those people did make contributions to the company. Then there were generalists who worked across a large number of different technologies, often sort of merging things from different areas. They also made contributions. But then there were these sort of people who weren't that deep or weren't that broad. Like they'd, they'd skip around kind of a lot, but not really in a coherent way where they were combining things. And they didn't really make big contributions. And then the biggest contributions were people who would kind of go kind of deep and then come up and go to another area and connect it and go kind of deep that they called the polymaths. And so the specialists and the generalists both made contributions. The polymaths made huge contributions, but the people who sort of bounced around and never merged these different areas in any way tended not to make as big contributions. And so I think of that as sort of an analogy where if you're, if you're bouncing around forever sort of incoherently, like when, when we talked about the dark horse people, they sort of make these pivots where they say they're pivoting based on what they learned. I learned this thing that I can take over here and try it. You know, or I learned I'm bad at something, so I want to pivot away from that. Or I'm good at something, so I want to bring it to this other place. So I think there's an issue of telling and retelling your story a lot and pivoting intentionally in a way so that you're connecting these sort of dots in your journey. Or some of the... Um, in some of the creativity research, psychologists would call this having a network of enterprise, like having, you've, you've tried all these sort of different things and they're all part of this network where you're constantly thinking about how do these things connect? How do you draw on your broader network, your broader base of experiences? Um, and so I think it's an issue of, of having some coherence in your journey and making pivots intentionally. McKinsey is an example that comes to mind for me of almost like a business model that wants generalists. So you graduate and you don't know what to do, but you're smart. So go work at McKinsey for two or three years. And they're happy to have you come and learn something and then go off and do something else. Is that a good model or is it in a way too bland? Um, and the better way to be a generalist is to actually choose something very specific per the dark horse um, line of thinking learn from that, then go do something else specific and eventually cobble together these very specific things as opposed to just majoring in being a consultant, so to say. And just like bouncing around a lot. I mean, I, I think that to make an analogy to the education point and sort of related to what we said before, there's some really interesting work I wrote about where an economist found a natural experiment in the higher education systems of England and Scotland. And in the period he studied, I'm not sure if they're still like this, but in the period he studied, um, the systems were basically identical, except in England, students had to had to test into a certain course of study in their mid-teen years, so they had to pick a specialty pretty early. In Scotland, they could keep trying things, keep sampling through college if they wanted to. And his question was, who wins the trade-off, the earlier, the late specializers? And he saw that same pattern where the early specializers jump out to an income lead because they have more domain-specific skills. But the late specializers get to do this sampling, and when they do pick, they have higher match quality. So this wasn't so much an issue of necessarily connecting dots as they got to try a group of different things when they picked, they had better fit. And so their growth rates were higher. And so by six years out, they fly past the early specializers um, in income. Meanwhile, the early specializers start quitting their career tracks in much higher numbers, basically because they were made to pick so early, they more often made poor choices. So I think there is value to that sampling period for its own sake, as long as it doesn't go on forever. Um, so that's, I think that benefit, you know, college where it's a few years. So I think with McKinsey, like I was talking, I was interviewing recently, Tony Fidel, who was the lead designer of the iPod and co-founder of Nest. And he actually mentioned McKinsey and he said, you know, he thinks it's, he actually thinks it's good if you go there and you get exposed to a broad range of things that help you figure out like where you can add value and what you're interested in. But if you go there and you decide like, that's the thing that you're going to do forever and you never kind of go get your hands dirty deeper in a project, then maybe that's a problem. And I thought that was a pretty good take. I think it can be a great sampling period. Um, I wonder if it's, if, if it's the kind of, I, I would, my guess would be that it's not the kind of thing that should necessarily go on forever. If somebody wants to try to, you know, make a bigger impact ultimately. So taking this metaphor of the early lead, the sort of the hare and the tortoise, the early lead of the specialist versus the late blooming of the generalist, um, and applying that not simply to income or not simply to career fit, but almost more holistically to like an existential accomplishment, a sense of where does eudaimonia or fulfilling life come from? Um, with that as the goal, how should generalists and specialists alike be thinking about diversifying beyond just career? 
Um, like if you take Agassi as an example, okay, he was great at sports because he tried lots of different sports, but what's the extension of that sort of beyond sports to just life itself as a kind of game? Yeah, that's okay. And I should say that the reason I mention income and match quality in this stuff is because it's the easy to measure dependent variable in a lot of research, not because I, or even the people doing the research think that it's necessarily the most important thing, but it is measurable <laughs> at, at scale. Um, I, I think that's a great question. I mean, there is, for one, I think, and and I got this sense really reinforced. Obviously, it's funny. I'm I was writing a book about the importance of generalism, you know, and based on like uh, more than a hundred interviews with people who are pretty <laughs> specialized in the things that they're studying in many cases. Um, and it would be interesting because sometimes in sort of the small talk after the interviews, I would do with them, they would express some frustration about how specialized they felt they were incentivized to become. It wasn't always clear to me that they did actually need to be as specialized as they thought, but they certainly felt that way, um, that pressure. And they would say, you know, they would give the impression that they signed up for this sort of life of the mind when they went into academia and felt like they were told to become narrower and narrower and narrower. And especially there's some research showing that like women really more often report they want to be involved in interdisciplinary research, but are, are geared away from it because they're told nobody will take them seriously. Um, on the other hand, Nobel laureates, uh, to go to this tortoise and hare thing, progress more slowly earlier in their careers than they get tenure later because they're more interdisciplinary early, which of course obviously pays off later. But I think that curiosity, like people that are interested in, in something tend to be able to get interested in a lot of things. And I think that we naturally sort of have a curiosity about a lot of things if we feel like we're allowed to explore them. And there's, there's like suggestive research that having hobbies and things that are unrelated to your work actually are really good for sort of men mental health and your self-efficacy. And if that hobbies are too closely related to your work, they actually decrease your sense of self-efficacy. So I think there's plenty of suggestive evidence that, you know, for, to just use a cliche term, like that broadening your horizons is a good thing for you in a whole bunch of ways. And that Zen concept of beginner's mind, right? Where you make sure to get involved in some things where you're kind of incompetent, right? Because I think as we become competent in things, we tend to just do more of that same thing and lose the feeling of um, struggling with something or learning something new or even meeting new types of people, right? Like we can get like pretty comfortable uh, in our social circle and not sort of be pushed in the way that maybe new relationships can push us. So I, I think that's a really important thing. I think the the difficulty is that we're often battling against um, sort of comfort. Like when I, I talked to the economist, Russ Roberts, who hosts econ talk about this. And I said, well, you know, we were first started talking about how people build skills and actually physical skills. And there's all this science showing that you sort of get to good enough. And then just by doing something, and then you naturally stop there unless you find new ways to push yourself. And I said, oh, it's this kind of rut of competence. And he said, well, it's a hammock of competence because it's so comfy. You don't want to get out. And that applies to everything. Like the people you see every day, your routines, the stuff you do, and I think that can be that can be really narrowing, especially given the fact that personality change does occur. And so we should actually be looking for sort of new types of relationships and new interests to 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 fit to our own changing personality. Um, and I don't know about you, I mean, but but for me, if I'm not sort of by the time anything I've worked on, a major project is already out in the world, I'm like a total incompetent beginner, whatever other thing I'm doing. So it's this really weird feeling of if a project goes well. I'm getting all this positive feedback for something like about how well I did. And at, meanwhile, I'm like, I'm terrible and, and like struggling at whatever other thing I'm doing. And that's uncomfortable, but I also kind of love it because it's, it really pushes me. You know, it's like, you don't get better by lifting the same weights the same number of times every day. You might not get worse, but you don't get better. And so whether it's people in my network or the things I'm trying, I'm constantly sort of putting long antennas out. How do you think about that? I mean, you proudly self-identified as a generalist, which is not that normal. <laughs> um, how do you think about applying it to your, to your personal life if you do? For me, it's like the metaphor that comes to mind is dimensions. So I'm trying to get out of three dimensions. So it's like interdisciplinarity used to be the thing I pursued, but then I realized that's still on the same plane. It's still on the second dimension. It's like, okay, more knowledge. 
but what about different kinds of being in the world? So it's like, I tried my hand at dance because I didn't just want to be intellectual. Now I'm a parent of three kids and I'm putting most of my time and energy into that when I'm not working. So that's like expanding a different kind of muscle or way of thinking. Um, and then I now, you know, work at a company. So that's like a new way of being in the world as well. It's almost like, I guess for me, the, the other metaphor that comes to mind is like the 10 Sufi wrote from Kabbalah, um, where each one is almost a different orientation. And so, yes, I, I'm always going to be passionate about knowledge, but there's something also kind of boring about always being cognitive. So that's where I'm trying to diversify. Um, but I think the question that comes up then is like, well, what's core? Like, who am I then aside from my curiosity? Um, and then it's the incoherence problem where you're always trying to connect the dots, but when you're in that space of exploration and you can feel a little bit disoriented. I, I think, I think it almost not only can you, I think it's, it, it might almost be like a requirement to some degree. Yeah. I think it's an identity crisis, basically. It, it is it all is. the time. I mean, and I think that's that's the challenge for people who are curious about a lot of things in general is that they like when I read Hermine Ibarra's book, Working Identity, it resonated with me so much because I switched from science into writing, and then I switched to kind of the kinds of writing I was doing. I always wanted it to feel safer, like to use to use an old analogy. It always felt like you know an old school DJ who actually had turntables where they're like crossfading from one to the other, and they're you're not really sure which one they're on. You're kind of stuck between them. And reading her book, I just, what really was sort of cathartic for me was she was studying these kinds of transitions and finding, oh, everyone, no matter how well it goes, everyone feels that. And you actually can't avoid it because all of this stuff, again, she was studying work particularly, but that is part of your identity. And we have this idea that you like run into a phone booth as Clark Kent, you know, and come out as Superman, but that's not how identity works. Like you contain multitudes. You're a different person with your parents than you are, you know, as a parent or with your partner or with your colleagues at work. I think it, it helped me with the realization that I didn't have to condense my identity to like too, too much, you know, artificially to feel like a person that there are these sort of multitudes in there. And those are just sort of different aspects of me. Um, and that's okay. One of the topics that comes up a lot in these discussions is diversification, which is a term that I know like in the financial sort of an investing space is a core principle, right? Like diversify the portfolio. Um, but I see that mostly as defensive. Like the reason why you would diversify is because the, the future is uncertain or your worldview is necessarily fallible. And so you don't want to, you, you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket because what you know for sure is that you're wrong. Um, but I have a more positive view of diversification, which is integration. And so it's not so much a matter of, um, trying to cover yourself, but more almost the idea of elevating any particular thing, you know, by creating more connections to other things. Mm, mm. No, I like that. I was Adam Alter, the psychologist at NYU has a brand new book out and he wrote about the diversification in the sense of, you don't want to put all your identity eggs in, in one basket. Um, and yeah, and I love his work, but I, I really like that, that framing, you know, sometimes I've thought of it as sort of book chapters, right? Like we remember these chapters of our life, like when you first have kids, right? That's a very stark, like you're, you're entering a new chapter and things are changing. And so sometimes I think about the various experiences or sort of selves I've been as chapters in a book, but that I can flip back and forward to kind of at, at any time, but they're all, they're all related in a sort of arc. That's not exactly the same, but, but I like that. I really like that framing. Yeah, because like I think the practical question for why you should generalize might be, well, we don't know what the economy is going to be in 20 years, but um, there's a good chance you'll succeed if you have a variety of interests and skills rather than one thing that gets automated, for example. But another might just be, well, it's a more fulfilling sort of powerful life to do something that nobody else can do. And by the way, it's also a competitive advantage. Yeah. 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 It's a good point. It's because I do think the, it's hard not to always get caught up in the, well, it's also a competitive advantage, right? Because that always, that sort of becomes the lead. Um, it's easier to talk about again, because the studies are on employment and, and work and all these sorts of things. But I do think, I, I don't think anyone should be, I wouldn't want to force anyone to be broad any more than I think someone should force, be forced to be narrow. But I think 
the sense I get is that a lot of people would love to, if they didn't feel disincentivized from it, to to kind of expand their horizons in a lot of ways um, more than they do. Do you think that the disincentivization, though, is also part of the competitive advantage? So the barrier to entry, the psychological barrier to entry that we were talking about before with the identity sort of shake up, as well as the like, it's not socially cool to go from, let's say, being a scientist to being a science writer, for example, um, that that's that's what results in the reward. Whereas if sort of everybody moved towards generalism, then the equilibrium would price that in. And so then you would have to actually move in the other direction to maintain your edge. I do. I do. So I think if this, you know, way of thinking, at least for adults, got super popular, then the some of that advantage would probably disappear. I don't think we have to worry about that yet. Although someone did tag me in a tweet recently that was some some company put out a report. I don't know. It was It was just sort of like, wisdom for work or something. And there was a section in it that said, you're going to always think you want to hire a generalist, but sometimes you should actually have a specialist. And I was like, whoa, wait, I don't think, I don't actually think we've, they're just being contrarian. We haven't actually swung that uh, far. So I don't think we're there yet, but I think in principle, yes, that some, some of the, a lot of the advantage right now that accrues to generalists is because, you know, a lot of people who who could and probably should be broader are, are not. So, I don't know the origins of the phrase like tiger parent. Is it related to Tiger Woods or does it predate that? <laughs> I think the the most that it really became part of like uh, the common lexicon with the book Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother. Yeah. But um, where does tiger mom come from? Like as a phrase? That's a good question. I don't know the um, I don't actually know the origin of that phrase. That's a good question. I think I think that Amy Chua, the author of that book, actually coined the phrase uh, "Tiger Mom." I mean, I read that book and I don't remember her there being any deeper gotcha. origin to it. Um, it seems like a happy coincidence, though, that Tiger Woods, right, had had a kind of, in some ways, a tiger parent. Not 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 in the sense of aggressive, but certainly in the sense of directing him to a track. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, I wonder if that sort of, since I think Tiger Woods is the most impactful modern story of development period that, um, that I wonder if that, you know, influenced her, obviously there's the connotations of like a tiger being uh, aggressive and, um, you know, stalking around, but an intense, I guess that's, that's where I'm going is trying to disambiguate the two aspects of tiger. The one being the here's the track you need to be on from the sort of emotional resonance that I associate with the phrase, which is almost less to the specifics and more about just how does it feel being parented in that way. And I observe the phenomenon of tiger parenting in generalism as well. I don't, I don't really think, for example, kids are only being raised to specialize in one thing by aggressive <laughs> uh, parents. They can, you can, to get into college, you also have to be like really good at like 20 different things and also do community service. So I don't know. Um, and the question in that is like, how do you disambiguate when it comes to the parenting aspect of this, the being directed part from the being directed to one thing? Yeah, yeah. And by the way, which I think it's useful to note that Tiger Woods, his father, who was certainly like guiding his golf career, did not try to force him into, as Tiger himself said, his father never asked him to play golf. I mean, he was showed this like very un, in, unusual physical prowess and interest from a very early age. And then his father sort of facilitated that. Um, people are often like worried about missing if they have a prodigy, You're like know that when those rare cases, like a tiger woods, it's usually like driving the parent crazy to try to accommodate the, the child as opposed to, but, but I think a lot of parents spend all this time missing, like, well, what if they, what if they are the next Tiger Woods? I just don't know it. I have to push them harder. You're like, no, you'll, you'll know. Like they, they announce themselves like that. But, um, I think you're right, especially with college admissions type stuff where <laughs> everyone thinks they have to have this. I thought uh, the new one is now parents are hitting up these sort of bogus peer reviewed journals to get their kids like science publications before they apply to college. And it just like spiders out and gets crazier and crazier and crazier. That's this whole other weird phenomenon that like with the, that scandal where the Hollywood parents were, you know, sort of faking resume stuff for their kids to get into college. When I was trying to understand that, some of those kids didn't even seem like 
they cared themselves. And so the only way I could understand that was as if those kids were basically jewelry for their parents that the kids themselves weren't, didn't seem to care that much, but their parents really wanted to say that they went to such and such a college. So that to me was very much a vicarious, probably a vicarious living sort of phenomenon or a, or like buying a nice car, right? They wanted something to show off. Um, so that I think in the, is in this whole other realm of the parents themselves need to sort of ask what it is they're caring about when they're doing that stuff. Um, that feels sort of foreign to me. I mean, for, for me, I, I have a toddler son and my thing feeling for him is I'm going to expose him to a range of things. You know, that's always sort of limited by your geography and just the stuff that's around you and the people that you know. And my goal will be to try to help him get sort of the most learning signal out of each of those things that he tries. Um, so that he's not just, I'll, I'll let him bounce around stuff, but I want to help aid him in sort of the reflection about why is he moving or sticking with a certain thing um, and and build up from there. But yeah, I don't have an answer for the sort of the college craziness stuff. I think it's completely out of control and probably largely a backfire for the things it's actually attempting to select for. It seems more like a two by two then where sort of on one axis is the specialism versus generalism. And then on the other is sort of the motivation for pursuing excellence, however defined ranging from sort of the most pure being like a love of excellence in and of itself versus something highly instrumentalized, which is this sort of ornamentation, like ego, egotism, look at me, you know? I mean, I mean, how do you, I think, you know, again, my, my son is four, so it's a long way away from this, but I don't have, you know, I went to a fancy college. My wife went to a fancy college. I don't have any feeling of caring if he does that. Um, I just don't, I don't feel any sense of that kind of vicarious need. Uh, you know, I want him, I think the best I can do, and I I think I've read enough behavioral genetics to know that I can't mold him to the extent that a lot of parents feel that they can. Um, and at first that, well, you can definitely ruin a kid, you know, with deprivation, but, but above a certain level of enrichment, I think to a large degree, they're going to become who they're going to become. Obviously you have an impact, but there's, there's a lot that I think is, is built in and, so at first I thought that was sort of depressing. Like, oh, I can't, you know, mold them exactly how I want. But now I think of it as kind of liberating because I don't really want to micromanage anyway. And my role is sort of help them become who they're going to become and, and figure that out. How do you think about it as, as a parent of three? Yeah, I mean, I have, a, I have a slightly more cynical view when you said what you said, which is totally beautiful and good, um, which is just like, the, I think the status of fancy college has gone way down. And so it's not a fair test. Like put, put me in an economy um, 50 years ago where the bottleneck to sort of going into the upper middle class for the most part is controlled by this, by your school. Um, and ask me, am I going to be anxious if my kid doesn't get there? Um, but sort of in the age of the internet where everything is sort of exposed as being a kind of luxury good or what do you call it? Conspicuous consumption. It's in a way much easier to just say, ah, it doesn't really matter if, you know, they go to Harvard. Like, I'm not convinced that in 20 years, like, Harvard is going to be the high status thing that that it was uh, when I grew up. In terms of the, like, the molding point, um, for me, the sticking, the stick, yeah, so I don't think it's possible to mold. Um, I think it's possible to influence through modeling. And there are certain things that I really do want to model. Um, and it would disappoint me if I was ineffective at modeling those things or if it didn't stick, but those tend to be much more like core values, um, things like, you know, religion, um, a sense of service, like, you know, good ethics, that kind of thing, as opposed to, and like, you know, a sense of a meaningful life as opposed to something that is a little bit more competitive. I see competition as a cross between a necessary evil and like the practical aspect is the necessary evil because you, to get on the world, you kind of, you have to win. And then it's good to have a sense of accomplishment um, that you get from hard work and agency that you build from sort of beating the competition. But um, I wouldn't want 
myself or my children to the extent that I have any uh, influence on it to sort of stay in that state. Like that seems very hedonic treadmill, sort of unfulfilling. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When I was younger, I'd say I'm still like a competitive person, but when I was younger, I was extremely competitive. I mean, I was a, you know, division one college runner and all this stuff. And like, very competitive. Like everything was a competition. I'm not like that now. And I wouldn't really want my kid to be like that. Like I, I think my, my main priority, like I really want him to feel comfortable in himself and to feel comfortable with people that are different. I mean, so like my son's in a school where I'm on the board and he's one of only eight kids who pays any tuition because it's mostly fully subsidized, low-income families. And that was a choice we made because we want him to start to feel comfortable with people that are really different from him because that's just sort of one of our values. And so those things, like in terms of kind of success or competitiveness, I guess there's a level of competitiveness I had that I sort of hope he doesn't have, <laughs> you know, even though it was useful for certain things. So I think one of the advantages of competition also is being able to measure your progress. Like, how am I doing? Well, I don't know. I got a faster time today than yesterday, or I got first place. That person didn't. Um, and when you get to this more spiritual point of view, for lack of a better word, it's like very hard to benchmark yourself. Um, maybe you can compete with yourself, but um, how do you think about measuring progress as a generalist? Because the more niche that you become, the harder it is to know what you're supposed to be benchmarking against. Like the more idiosyncratic, I think. I think like part of why people have envy, in my view, of specialism, uh, specialization, is because you kind of know where you stand. You know who's the smartest mathematician in the room. But like with the Nobel stuff, it's like a little bit more subjective and amorphous. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I was just talking to a group of people about this who were. Um, kind of creative professionals earlier in their career and have progressed to being managers of creative professionals. And they struggle with that. As, as they described it, they said like going from vertical to horizontal jobs, they called it, where you're sort of diving into your own project to this much more management and they're struggling to figure out like when they're doing a good job or not. And a great narrative about that is in Ed Catmull, he used to be the president of Pixar, his book, Creativity Inc., um, where he talks about how he's like, life is devoted to making the first ever fully computer animated film. And then they do that with Toy Story and it should be his dream come true. And after he's like, oh, well, like now what? I don't want to just, I did that goal. Like just doing the, the next one of that isn't satisfying. And he writes about how it takes him quite a bit of time to reframe a goal as getting sort of fascinated by as the company gets bigger he sees some aspects of the culture that allowed it to be creative are deteriorating he says and his and sort of and he realizes he was blind to all these sort of forces that are taking hold and so he becomes determined to sort of understand how do you titrate the balance of kind of structure and freedom to 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 maintain a creative culture and that becomes his sort of this biggest mission for the next, you know, several decades of his career. But you can sense that struggle of it's not the same as finish the movie, what's the box office, kind of that thing. And so I think you have to be a lot more deliberate and, and accepting of kind of setting up benchmarks for yourself, basically. I mean, I have something I call a book of small experiments, where at least every other month I put down a hypothesis that can be something, a job I don't understand that I want to learn more about, or it can be you know, well, like one of the most fruitful ones for me was I wanted to uh, learn some different structure, potential structures for writing. And so I, I put down the thing I want to do or the question I have, what's a way that I can investigate this? Oh, I ended up taking an online fiction writing course for beginners. And it was like a total revelation. Um, and so that's not sort of progressing in a linear way where it's, I'm compiling more and more citations in whatever field that I'm in, but it was, here's a thing I need to get better at. How can I do that? Okay. I'm going to go try some experiments. And so I think you need to be a lot more deliberate about the experimental mindset of setting up a thing that, you know, here's a thing I need or want to work on. How can I, can I investigate that and sort of going that way? Going back to authenticity. So I studied existentialism in college and grad school. I did my PhD thesis on Heidegger 
who's often read as an existentialist, especially his Being in Time, which was written, I think it was published in 1927. And a lot of people read it in the interwar period as sort of being about the experience of war, even though he himself was not in combat. Um, He had this phrase, leaping towards death, um, which was not meant to mean the sort of, um, you know, going bungee jumping or uh, charging towards the enemy line, but more the sense of recognizing your mortality and then asking yourself, is this the way I want to live, given that I am a finite being, Um, as opposed to being in an inauthentic state where you sort of just assume that you have an endless number of days and that tomorrow can be the same as today and it's fine. And so dialing up the temperature, um, forcing us to ask, like, are we living the life that we uniquely want to be living? With that in mind, it seems like Heidegger's call to authenticity would, or the existentialist call to authenticity would point away from specializing, I think, um, or at least for, for those who are specialists, but stuck, it would be a way of saying, oh, do I really want to just keep doing the same thing? Or maybe I should try this thing before I die. Um, but I had a different meditation related to this one, which is assume that you're going to live to be a hundred or 120 instead of 70 or 80. Um, does that calculus change the way that you relate to the projects that you undertake? Because it, I, I feel that maybe there's a default assumption in the culture that we are going to, let's say, retire at 65 and then have 10 to 20 years after that. And if that's not the correct assumption, then maybe we should be more patient and we should be planting more seeds. So this is sort of an open-ended prompt, but what are your thoughts on like designing a life with longevity in mind? I do think that's a really interesting question. And I do think that if, if we could assume that more of those years would be, you know, healthy enough for us to be taking on new things, I do think that would change the calculus for sure. I mean, I think, I think that looming deadline, whether we're thinking about it explicitly or implicitly colors entirely the way we think about the stage that we're supposed to be at, um, you know, in different parts in different parts of our careers. And I think a lot of that, like, I think there's a ton of research showing that what we thought about older people learning new things did not really have to be true. Like people can continue to learn stuff. And even, even of the so-called big five personality traits that psychologists study, one of them called openness to experience is the one most associated with creativity and kind of reliably goes down, um, middle age and faster and late middle age. Um, but if people just try new things, then it doesn't. They don't even have to get good at those things. They just have to be getting pushed to do new things, and it and it keeps that up. And so I think some of the decline in a lot of things that we've seen, the learning, you know, not not to say that there's no real declines. There are, but but the degree to which people cease to learn new things, I think, is not inevitable. I think it's just like something we've learned with athletes, which is people thought they expired when they were thirty, and that was never really the case. If they were better taken care of or if they didn't get injured. And often it was the case it was just someone younger and cheaper was coming behind them, not that they had suddenly expired. And actually they can go a lot longer. Um, so I think that I think that would change things. I think, you know, I think it th- I think the influence could be either way. Like I think the the feeling of that mortality deadline can be a helpful thing. Um, I think some of the sort of productivity productivity mania that people have and the the tools that make us feel like we can be infinitely productive are sometimes kind of a method of making us ignore our mortality a little bit, like as if we can get all of the stuff done, but actually we have to choose. Um, But I think if we were, you know, you're talking about our our work life potentially being added to by 50% or a hundred percent, depending on how, how much how many of those years are healthy, then we would have to think about new phases that people would be moving through. And I think that, I think that would change the way people thought about their careers. We can't obviously know our day of expiration or entirely forecast or underwrite sort of our health and quality of years ahead. But it does seem to me like with the nature of work changing and at least for some people and potential breakthroughs in medicine, um, and certainly discovers discoveries around health and nutrition, then maybe we're modeling our lives according to an old an older view 
um, on the cadence. And so if you, th if you go back to the investing metaphor, like the question is sort of what is it your holding period for the investment? And if you're holding something for five years, then you're looking for a payoff after five years. If you're holding something for 50 years, you can be more patient. And so um, I'd be curious, both descriptively and normatively, to think about how generalists versus specialists model the holding period for their sort of life. Mm. <laughs> That's interesting, the holding period for life. And there was, you reminded me of a, of a guy in the UK who was studying sort of why do some say like, you know, whether an athlete or a violinist, like why do some of them then become good coaches or CEOs of teams or someone going from being a great violinist to being a successful CEO of the orchestra and others totally fail at it. And his main conclusion was that some of them in the development all along in their career, even as they are becoming the great violinist, view their career as what he called an eight lane highway where they're sort of seeding these other interests. So they have multiple things going. They also tend to have a broader network. Um, and they're sort of keeping things going even, even on the side basically versus the others who were always on kind of a one way road and then they're not really able to, to expand. And so the latter part of their career, once they're not a performer is not un underwhelms them and, and others, I guess. So I think dropping those seeds, um, I think that is an important is an important thing, and I don't think it really has to necessarily take away from uh, whatever it is that's most important at the moment. Are there models, like cultural models, that we can look to who have sort of done a great job seeding their lives and then reaping a harvest in much older uh, periods? I don't know that there's anything. I mean, I think we're sort of a bit in the middle of this, but there are populations that. I think make better use of like recognize sort of the, the wisdom of older people more as opposed to viewing them as just having kind of expired. Um, but I don't know that there's like a great active model for this. And I think some of this is, you know, like I think the advice that a lot of people get to specialize as quickly as they can actually did make sense for a lot of their grandparents. And like when we were in an economy that wasn't changing as quickly, um, and people had more of like a discrete training period followed by a period of work based on that training and, um, lateral mobility was limited. And so people weren't really moving between careers. I think it, it made sense. So sometimes the people, I don't want to rag on the advice that people get from their parents and grandparents. It may have made more sense for them. I think things are sort of different. I think we're in a different world now. And the specialization and generalization has sort of waxed and waned throughout, throughout time, like in even in like medieval guilds, they were very specialized and that, that led to a certain level of quality being maintained, but it also turned out to be very, uh, militate really against any innovation and new ideas. So there were these sort of trade-offs. So I think we're, I think we're, and maybe we're, this is a cliche thing to say, but in kind of a new moment, um, right now where we have a chance to set some of the, the cultural model. Do you think the ability to be innovators dilemma is unlocked by breadth do generalists fare better than specialists when it comes to sort of foreseeing these disruptive trends oh definitely when it comes to foreseeing the the disruptive trends or acting also yeah, yeah. Uh, acting seeing is for sure i mean there's very clear like yeah. forecasting research on the when people get really narrowly specialized they they cease to be able to see around the corner basically and that's this 20 year long research project that that I write about kind of at length, but yes, I think so. Because I think the, there, there's a whole bunch of research sort of from different areas that gets at something I think of, and this is a phrase I just stole from one of the papers, but as injections of novelty where lots of breakthroughs happen when someone is sort of grounded in, in familiar knowledge in an area, but then brings in something else. That's not a secret. It's not like they necessarily invented this other thing, but they, they, the invention is them bringing it from another context into, into a certain area. And those, those people are, um, you know, these people who, who have a view of not just in the one trench, but of all the other trenches that are around that they can look down into. I think that's where innovation tends to mostly come from. So in the ancient and medieval world, there was sort of the executive, the king, so to say, um, often had a wise person, 
accompany him. Um, let's say a Merlin or a Pope, or uh, in the case of biblical times, a prophet. Um, modeling that within this generalism framework, do you think that that do you think that that was a good combination? Like essentially, and and more to the point, is it something that we've lost, um, or do we still have it um, in just a different form? Because sort of one rationalistic Enlightenment view of those kind of Merlin types is like, oh, that's pseudoscience. That doesn't really that doesn't really add anything. They, they were just sort of covering their um, they were covering their bets by sort of paying a head nod to the spiritual realm. But you might say that, no, they were offering another way of thinking and that that sort of actually forced creativity in a way that maybe the more practical person who is just keeping count of the treasury or plans for war would have would have not considered. And so um, the the real power of the prophetic role or the mer or the wizard is in, in a way just forcing this king from not becoming a specialist. I think having someone with a very, very different view is hugely helpful. I think the if those people were just sort of doing what they had to do to not get their head chopped off, uh, you know, depending on the executive, then maybe that wouldn't be so helpful. But but there's a whole um, there's a whole bunch of research like looking at it sort of progressed this way. I'll give the quick progression of how this research went. Was when there's a group of people who kind of think the same way and have the same backgrounds working on a problem and they're stuck. If you introduce, you know, a really bright outsider to the group, does that help? The answer turns out to be yes. Okay. So then researchers said, well, what if you introduce like a kind of incompetent outsider who doesn't know anything about this, anything useful? Turns out that helps too. So, okay. Well, what if you get, in this case, they had to use remote teams collaborating to problem solve, solve problems. What if you just introduce an AI bot that just behaves randomly as part of this problem-solving team? Will that still help? And the answer turned out to be yes. It helped a lot because it like seeds new ideas for people to try new things. And so I think that that principle of having someone who thinks really differently can kind of counteract the blinders or the so-called Einstellung effect, where you get used to thinking and solving problem in a certain way so much that you'll just keep doing that. And you're even blind to the fact that you're doing it. And I think especially for us, the exact, you know, sovereign or the executive, there's a real kind of lonely at the top phenomenon for executives. Like they don't have colleagues the same way other people do. Um, you know, they're, they, they, have, they draw a lot of criticism, even if they're doing a good job. Um, I think that need to, to have other types of input can be especially acute uh, for, you know, for people who, who, who maybe if they don't even realize it, probably have a little bit of the loneliness at the top syndrome. There's a phrase that I love from the Talmud, the prisoner cannot free himself from jail. Um, interestingly, it was applied to refer to a rabbi who went around healing depressed people and then himself became depressed and uh, it was asked, why could he not heal himself? And the answer being that just because you have the power to heal others doesn't mean you can apply that power to yourself. And your, um, your response made me think of another study and I don't have a source for this. So maybe this is bogus, but I still enjoy, <laughs> I enjoyed the thrust of it. Um, so we all know that placebos um, have some efficacy but interestingly, if you give somebody a pill and tell them that it's a placebo, meaning you tell them that there's nothing in it and they take it, that itself is supposedly better than nothing. Um, so in other words, you don't even need to you don't even need to accept that the pill is potentially efficacious. Just doing something is efficacy. Yeah. That, that, that is true, by the way. That, that's definitely, you're right about there are studies that show that placebo effect works even if you know it's a placebo. And, and the nocebo effect, where if you're, you, know, you think it's going to have a bad effect, um, and uh, then you can still have some, some like discomfort <laughs> from certain pills, even if, even if you know. Yeah, no, that's amazing. I, I, I love the way you framed that. So, so, yeah, so perhaps one way to model that is that it stir, it almost gets you to take an outside view of yourself. And so ideally that outside view is coming from an actual outsider, but you might even be able to self-generate it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think, again, I think probably ideally you would have an outsider outsiders 
but I also think there's pretty good evidence about what's called distanced self-talk, like where if you try to talk to yourself in your head, you know, or that that's where this, if you ever see this recommendation that's in a million articles to, if you need advice on something, pretend like you're, you need to think about advice for yourself, pretend like you're giving it to a friend first, as if you're talking to them to, to kind of get you into that outside view. And that really comes out of that observation, um, that you can get, I don't want to say necessarily outside of yourself because it's, it's still yourself, but access these, these other yous, I guess that can reflect on the one that you're sort of taking for granted at the moment. Supposedly that's how Buffett writes his shareholder letters. He addresses them to dear Dorothy to his sister. Oh, that's cool. And then, and then deletes it. Um, so with this this self other thing, um, the other thought I had about this, so Plato criticizes the, the rhapsode, the performer of poetry as lacking knowledge and being merely possessed by the gods or the muses or being merely inspired because sort of in Plato's worldview, or at least, you know, Socrates is as represented by Plato, like um, the, the artist lacks self-reflection. And so there's very little that's impressive <laughs> about the artist. Um, it's all just manipulation. Um, and then the philosopher by contrast is the one who actually knows how things work and can represent it. And I'm not entirely sure if I share this criticism of the artist, meaning even assuming it were true, um, I'm willing to give more esteem to people who do things without being able to explain why. I don't, I don't think being inspired or being possessed um, is a bad thing. I'm not sure that being unphilosophical is a bad thing. Like if you, and you're a sports writer, like, um, as well. So like, if you think of an athlete, I used to experience this all the time. Like as a kid, like, let's say you watch the basketball player hitting the three, um, at the buzzer. And then afterwards the interviews are all the same. It's like, how'd you do that? And it's like, yeah, I just, you know, I did what I had to do. I put it in the back of the night. You're like, Oh, that was so enlightening. Thank you. Um, (laughs) like I'm fine with that. It almost seems like maybe they shouldn't be so articulate. Like if they knew what they were doing, they, that would have gotten in the way. Um, but at the same time, like Agassi wrote this memoir that is incredibly sort of self-reflective. And it seems like one thing that generalists can do perhaps better than specialists is give an account of their lives or give an, a, self, um, a self-account of what they're up to. So I, I don't know if that's true, but it intuitively feels true. It feels that a person who's just doing what they do wouldn't have the meta consciousness to sort of understand it. And um, that doesn't detract from their excellence in that area, but that may be part of what generalists also gain from looking at themselves from an outsider's point of view is that they can perspective take and thus contextualize their project within a broader frame. Cause they're sort of being forced to, to do that. I mean, I think that, to the athlete analogy, it's like they definitely don't know how they I, I used to use this as it turns out there's a whole bunch of things that athletes do that they even if they do tell you how they did it, they'll often be be wrong. They don't actually know sort of what's going on in a lot of cases. And that's good because if they're using their prefrontal cortex, then they're thinking too much to execute the skill at the speed and smoothness that they need to do it. And so I used to have this saying for sports writing, like when my colleagues would ask an athlete, how did you do that thing? And if they explained it sometimes you could show demonstrably that's not what they're doing. Like I looked here and I looked there and sometimes, you know, you could have like studies with gaze tracking glasses where a pro athlete would be in the study and you could see they, they would say that they looked at a different thing than they were actually looking at. And that has to be that way. Cause again, it's not, it's happening at like this unconscious level and speed. And so I used to say, just cause you're a bird doesn't mean you're an ornithologist. Like you, you maybe can't ask, you know, the, the person, the, the performer, how they did the thing. Maybe they can tell you some things, but and maybe they will give you an answer, but they'll often be wrong. Um, and that's okay. That that's good. They need, they need to do that to be able to execute that quickly. Um, but it isn't that kind of reflective process like, like you're talking about, but when it comes to artists, I think, I don't know. I like when artists help us channel. So like some art, I think I used to really not when I was much younger, I didn't know why anyone who could paint, for example, like a photograph would paint in any other way. And now I'm totally the opposite. Like I want abstraction and, and I'm, I'm sort of consuming it with a sense that I myself can't explain. Um, 
And I see a lot of value in that since that's not the way that I'm usually thinking. Um, I don't know if maybe, maybe abstract artists are, are, are my Merlins or something like that, you know, where I'm thinking analytically a lot of the time and then certain types of art kind of almost shift me into a different mode that I really appreciate. So, so I value that. I love it when artists talk about their work, but there's um, among some of them almost like, even if they could, they don't want to, because it feels like, um, it's like a comedian explaining his joke. Like you either get it or you don't. Um, and, uh, but I feel like when I take 10 steps back from this and I think, what, why are we, why, why would we want a world of generalists? Why would I want to be a generalist? Part of it is because I want to be a self-reflective person and I'm not going to be able to self-reflect if I'm just in my bubble. So in a way it continues this Socratic or platonic view of the good life as the examined life. I guess that's where I'm going with this. Is there, there a philosophical requirement to self-reflect? And then the question is, how do you, force that self-reflection by becoming another to yourself. Mm. I think that's well put. All right. Last, last question. Um, dating and marriage in the context of generalism. <laughs> so I think we live in a cultural moment um, where people are told that they should try a lot of things mm -hmm. and that that applies not just in the context of study or career, but also in terms of, marrying later, committing later. And um, I think there's a cost to that as well, which is that people are unsure when they're supposed to commit, um, what commitment means, given that they could imagine themselves living all different kinds of lives. And this is quite anecdotal, but I would venture that my specialist friends have an easier time um, finding a partner because they relate to that task through the eyes of a problem solver who's trying to find the missing piece. And a generalist doesn't know what problem they're trying to solve because it's almost like the problem itself has to be defined. Um, so do you have any dating advice for generalists um, <laughs> or ways that we could think about um, constructing a life of meaning with commitment more generally. So almost taking dating as a, one example, um, one case study for just thinking about how to balance this sort of endless, boundless curiosity and openness to experience with at the same time, realizing that commitment can open up possibility instead of close you off to it only. Yeah. I mean, I've never thought about this in the context of sort of generalist, well, or maybe a little bit, but I mean, I do think people should be able to gather a bit of data about the world and other people and about themselves before they're, you know, wh which I think can increase their chances of success for a long-term relationship. At the same time, I think there's a lot of, I can't remember the name of this researcher, but, and I'm not well-versed in this work by any means, but he called sliding, not deciding where people never want to sort of make a decision. So they, but they eventually move in with someone and then just develop momentum and end up getting married. And that actually tends to lower the chances of success where they slid into it. It's like, well, we'll save on rent if we move in together. We're, you know, and they, they just in, in an effort to keep their options just open forever, they sort of get to a time where they realize like, well, now, well, now you kind of either have to get married or, or stay single forever. And that tends not to work out so well where they're like not really proactively making the decisions in a sense. And so I think there's a balance because like there's the psychologist, I came across something he wrote, Mihai Chicks and Mihai, the, the flow psychologist, um, that, recently where he was talking about marriage and the quote was something like the great thing about marriage, if you're committed, because obviously people can be married and not committed. Um, the great thing if you're committed is that you can stop wondering how to live and start living. Um, and I was kind of thinking about this in the context of projects I was working on at the time. I'm like, I'm, I'm bouncing around so many different projects. I'm, I need to just pick one and start wondering which one to work on and, and work on one. And I think there was something beautiful to that. And I think there's some truth to that. That again, I do think you should spend some time gathering some data, but I think given, given the number of people you can be exposed to in dating apps and things like that, that if you have a maximizer mindset, it's kind of a setup for being unhappy. You're, you're basically participating in like a sort of blind auction where you don't know what other people are doing, and yet you can literally infinitely swipe to the next thing. And so I think you have to set some limits on yourself. Um, 
I don't know the best way to do that. I, there is in John Allen Paulos's book, uh, Enumeracy, he has a formula for it. Like you rate your partners on a one to 10 and then you should marry the first person you date who's like over a seven after a third of the people you predict you'll ever have dated in your life or something. So if you want a really uh, empirical formula, you can go to Paulos's book, uh, Enumeracy. But I think you're right that you have to switch from, a, you have to make a conscious switch at a certain point from a mode of sampling, learning things about yourself to commitment being freeing, like, like Chicks and Mihai said, um, where you can at a certain point stop wondering about the next swipe and, and start sort of living. Uh, I think titrating that balance is, I wish I had a perfect answer to that question. <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much, David. Pleasure. Really enjoyed this. Very uh, Lots of questions I've never been asked before, which I really appreciate. That's, that's the joy for me. Meditations with Zohar is produced by Jack Pombrian, Zachary Davis, and me, Zohar Atkins. It is produced in partnership with Soul Shop and Lyceum Studios. You can learn more about the show by visiting my website, ZoharAtkins.com. And if you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to my newsletters. You can also help by rating and reviewing the show so more people can discover these conversations. You can get in touch with me through my site or find me on Twitter, where I'm at Zohar Atkins. Thank you for listening and see you next time.